If you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses. And if you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 954. So 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 8. And 1 Corinthians is a uh, convicting book to read, to preach through, because so much of it is a rebuke, a rebuke of the early church about errors uh, that they have committed, but the errors are not limited to the early church. These are things that point to us, that are just as applicable to today's church. And the first four chapters that we had looked at dealt with this first rebuke, which had to do with divisions in the church. Remember, there were factions in the church. And we saw all of this stemmed from their worldly way of thinking. They were no different, we are no different, than our pagan neighbors. Well, we see the second rebuke here in chapter 5. And the sin discussed here is sexual immorality. But the rebuke, however, is not specifically against this sexual immorality itself, but rather it's against the church's toleration of this sin and failure to exercise church discipline. So that's what we'll be talking about today, church discipline. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. You know the word of the Lord. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us pray. Father, I pray for your spirit to be with us. Your spirit to be on me, Lord, that I will proclaim your words with clarity, with truth, and with boldness. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and minds to hear from you. Father, with this encounter with your word, will change us. We will love you more. We will trust you more. Our faith will be increased. We will love you more, and, and we will be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, according to the 1521 Belgic Confession, and this is a Reformed Confession similar to the and a predecessor of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we use as our confession in this church, but it expresses the same theology. According to this Belgic Confession, there are three marks that identify a true biblical church. And those marks are, first, the preaching of the gospel, the true gospel, and second, the administration of the sacraments, like we were going to do today. And the third mark is the exercise of church discipline. Now, the gospel, the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone, that is proclaimed every time someone preaches from this pulpit. This is something that we clearly proclaim in this church. And set before us today is the Lord's table, which we celebrate every 
week, either in the morning or in the evening service, where we have a real spiritual communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are spiritually nourished by his body and blood in this sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And recently we celebrated a baptism. We had a baptism of both a covenant child as well as an adult profession of faith. So two out of the three marks of a biblical church are seen every week at Northgate. But this third mark, church discipline, this seems to be less visible and less frequent than the other two marks. But truthfully, church discipline in its positive form is seen all the time in this church, including at this very moment. See, the the positive form of church discipline is called discipleship. Discipleship, which is really building up the sheep, building up the congregation. And the sheep are built up in a worship service, are built up by hearing the preaching of the word, by receiving the Lord's Supper, by the Sunday school lesson that we had in the beginning, by the Monday evening theology classes and the Tuesday morning women's Bible study and the Wednesday uh, Bible study on Malachi and our prayer meetings. All of these things are things, the Thursday evening yam group, all of these things are ways that the church is built up. These are times that we are discipled, where we are given the grace and, and the instruction and the opportunity to become more and more like Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple, to become like our master, to become like Christ. But there's a part of church discipline, this third mark, that's not as common. Thankfully, it's not as common. And we don't talk about it that often. And and thankfully, it's not often needed, although it is still needed. And this is corrective discipline. This is our negative discipline. And really, the only time that I I talk about this aspect of, of discipline is during our new members class, and we, we had one just, just two weeks ago, when we look at the membership question. Remember the last membership question is, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? So I need to talk about what these, these membership questions mean. So what does discipline of the church mean? What is its scope? What are its limitations? And in the five and a half years that I've been at Northgate, I don't think I have ever preached a sermon on church discipline. And I can tell you the truth, I probably never would have left on my own. But the beauty of what we do here, expository, verse-by-verse preaching through a book of the Bible, is that the text of the Bible determines the agenda, not me. And we happen to be on a text that talks about church discipline. So here we are. Well, in this text we see basically the outline of what we see. We see first the issue that requires discipline. And that's given in the first verse. And second, we see the process of church discipline, which is, which is uh, listed here, which is given in verses uh, 2 through 5. And then lastly, we see the reason why church discipline is necessary, why it is really essential. And we see that in verses 6 to 8. So that's our, our outline. So let's start off. <clears throat> what is the issue that's at hand here? What is the issue that needs to be disciplined? Well, we see it in verse 1. It said it's actually been reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Well, the first thing we notice here is humanity hasn't changed. It really hasn't changed since biblical times. What was the problem then? It was sexual. What is the problem now? Oftentimes it is sexual. In the few discipline cases that I have been involved in in my my 15 years of, of ordained leadership in the church, both as a ruling elder and as a teaching elder, I would estimate that the majority of these discipline cases 
if not the primary sin, at least a component has a, as a sexual component, a sexual sin. And and one of the one of the tragic, one of the many tragic results of the fall is really this grotesque distortion of sexuality that has really plagued our fallen race. See, we, we tend to think that this is a problem uh, that's, that's recent. You know, maybe back in the 60s, the sexual revolution. No, it goes all the way back to the fall. See, God has given us this, this, this good and gracious gift of sexuality. And the Bible is clear that the only context for it, the only context for any sexual activity is within a lifelong covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. That is it. Any other sexual activities, any extra sexual thoughts or desires outside this context is sinful, according to the Bible. And we're going to talk more about this in chapters 6 and 7 in 1 Corinthians. Again, not something I would voluntarily do, but that's what the text is taking us to. And it's interesting here that the type of sexual immorality mentioned here is something that is not even tolerated among pagans. Think about that. The activity that Paul is addressing is so heinous that even those who don't know God, by common grace, they recognize the destructiveness of this type of sin, of this type of relationship. And even they refuse to tolerate this kind of activity. But not so the Corinthians. No, no. What was their reaction to this wicked, incestuous relationship? Well, we see in verse 2. It says, and you are arrogant. Arrogant. That's the attitude of God's people. They are arrogant. They, see, they are proud of, of condoning an activity that even the pagans reject. And this arrogance could come from a misunderstanding of their Christian freedom, thinking that because they are no longer under law but under grace, under an amazing grace, that this somehow grace gives them freedom to sin. No. No. Grace is never, hear this again, grace is never a license to sin. What grace is, grace is freedom not to sin. It's not a license to sin. It's freedom not to sin. If we don't have grace, we have no other choice but to sin. And a very important part of church discipline is for the church to clearly articulate and clearly teach the biblical standards of morality and then hold the people accountable to these standards. And there are many, there are many Christians, <clears throat> many in, in Reformed and Evangelical circles, who are quick to yell if, if they hear this, you're a legalist. You're a legalist. Any attempt to hold someone to a, a biblical standard, they'll say, no, no, we're all sinners. Or, or who are you to judge this sin? You have your own sin. We're saved by grace, not by works. And again, I say, grace is not permission to sin. Rather, grace is freedom not to sin. And without a clear biblical teaching, see, sin will deceive us. It will always deceive us. We would always deceive us. We'll think we're, we think we're going down the right path, but it's going to deceive us into gratifying these desires. These desires are of our fallen nature rather than acting in accordance with our new nature, our redeemed nature, our nature that wants to glorify God above all else. So this is the first thing that we're seeing. <clears throat> so instead of being arrogant, Paul here continues in this verse to show them what the proper response should be. And this is the second in our outline. This is showing the beginning of the process of of, of church discipline. And he says, he says, ought you rather not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. See, instead of being proud, instead of being arrogant, they should be filled with shame. They should be filled with sorrow. They should be sorry that, that, that this type of immorality is found in their church. They should mourn. And then they should act. And they should act in a decisive manner. 
And that decisive act that Paul is calling for here is that this man be removed from fellowship. What is Paul is talking about here is excommunication. And this is the, the final and most drastic form of church membership. It is removing someone from the fellowship. It is declaring them not to be a believer, excommunicating them. And it's important, before we go further, it's important for us to understand the nature of church authority. Church authority is solely spiritual. It is solely declarative. It declares God's will. It declares God's judgment. Church authority is not physical. It is not forceful. It's not financial. It's only spiritual. It's only declarative. This means that the church does not have the authority to, tab, to use any type of physical force in church discipline. The church can't hit you, can't whip you, can't fine you or imprison you or execute you. The power of the sword is given not to the church. It is given by God to the civil magistrate, the civil government. We see this in Romans 13.4. But there is spiritual authority. Spiritual authority is not given to the government. It is given to the church. And in Matthew 16.19, uh, Jesus speaking to Peter, and Peter here represents the leadership of the New Testament church. So he would represent the, the session in our, in our calling, or the, or the presbytery, the leadership in the church. <clears throat> Jesus' own words says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what does this mean? Well, it might, it might appear because the, the church doesn't have any physical authority, uh, that its authority has no teeth. It, it, it's hollow. It's imaginary. But not at all. Not at all. What Jesus' own words say, that whatever the church binds, and again, that's the leadership in an official capacity, binds on earth, and that is the truth that the church declares about a person's soul, this will be bound for eternity in heaven. And in the case of, of, of excommunication, the church is declaring that this obstinate sinner, while persist, persisting in his sin, in this case, the man who is remaining with this woman who is, who is unlawful sexual relationship, it is declaring that this person is not a believer. And unless he repents, this person is going to hell. That is what this is saying. And this is what it means for the church to excommunicate a person. It is a sober judgment. It's important to understand also that the church is not sending a person to hell. The church is declaring God's standard of behavior that would be done by, by a regenerate person. And because a person continues in this, this unrepentant rebellion against God, as revealed by the standard, the church is declaring the spiritual reality that this person is not a believer. This person is not regenerate. He's a false believer. And the person is going to hell not because of what judgment he's under, it's because he is not converted. He is under God's wrath for all of his sins, not just the one of which he is under church discipline. So this spiritual authority, in one sense, is much, much more weighty than physical authority, right? which, which ends in this world. This is eternal, not temporal judgment. Verses 3 through 5 give us more insight into the nature of church discipline. Look specifically at verses 3 and 4. He says, Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, this is really confusing. I can tell you, I spent the most time on this specific passage when I'm studying for this. I'm going through commentaries. And I say, what is Paul talking about? I mean, it's difficult to be sure. He's talking about being absent in the body and present in the spirit. And I'm going through again, multiple commentaries, and a lot of them kind of throwing up their hands. But I'm going to get kind of cut to the bottom line of what I think this says. 
What I think this is saying is that this judgment for excommunication doesn't ultimately come from the church. It doesn't. It comes from the Holy Spirit. See, Paul is saying that although that he's not there in person, he's not there in body, he's there in spirit, he is in the Holy Spirit. And because Paul is in the Holy Spirit, he understands the judgment that has already been pronounced by the Holy Spirit. And when they gather together, again, in the Holy Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church is now directed to declare, not their own judgment, they are directed to declare the Lord's judgment. So I think that's what he's talking about. And this is really why prayer is so important. Uh, Those of you who are elders, if you've been involved in any of these uh, discipline cases, prayer is always important in the Christian life, but even more so in discipline cases. See, because what the church is trying to do, it's not trying to make a decision as a, as a human court, like a, like a judge, a legal system, you know, based only on the facts and reading the law and looking at precedents. We certainly do that. We do look at the facts. We understand what the scripture is teaching. But it's much more than this. See, the church, first and foremost, is listening to the Holy Spirit. And it's through prayer that the, the church is discerning the Lord's will. So when the church speaks, when the session speaks uh, with respect for, to discipline, it's speaking for the Lord. Matthew 18 20, which is a few verses after what, what Nathan read as our Old Testament reading. This is a verse that, that is well, well known, but it's often misapplied. It's often applied to respect to worship or prayer meetings. But if you look at it, it's really in respect to church discipline. And Matthew 18 20 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. See, this is saying that when the session is gathering for, for a uh, discipline, when they are gathered, when they are praying, the Holy Spirit is there with them. Christ is there with them. And they are not exercising their own authority, their own will. They are exercising Christ's will. And this is very comforting for me as an elder who is, who is called at times to make judgments in, in discipline cases. And, and some of them even involve excommunication, uh, declaring a person under God's judgment. I mean, that, that is a harsh thing to say that this person is unbelieving. Unbeliever, And it's comforting for me to know that this is not my decision. This is not my opinion. But the Lord is among us, is among the session, among the presbytery, among the standing judicial commission, during our deliberations. And he is the one who is guiding. And we are speaking not our own, but his judgment. And verse 5 here clearly states the gravity of what is being done in excommunication. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. A couple, a couple of points here about, uh, uh, from this verse about church discipline in general and, and excommunication specifically. Notice that the man is being delivered over to Satan. What this means is that by excommunication, the man is being removed from the spiritual protection that he enjoys by being part of the visible church. <clears throat> See, there are real benefits. There are real practical benefits, even for unbelievers, to be part of a church. See, uh, even unbelievers are exposed to the gospel of grace. They are exposed to the reading of God's word, the preaching of the gospel. They are in the communion with saints. They are protected by the prayers of the saints. And they are surrounded by truth. They are surrounded by discernment. But when a person is removed from fellowship, and this can happen by excommunication, but far more often it's they do it voluntarily. They withdraw by their, on their own. And when they leave the fellowship, they lose that protection. And they open themselves up to very real and severe demonic attack. That is why it's so important to be in church. That is why this pandemic has had such an effect on our country. Because it's kept Christians away from the means of grace. 
That is, and, and they've been vulnerable to Satan's attack. So they're no longer exposed to, to God's word read. They're no longer here, the gospel preached. They're no longer covered regularly by the prayers of the saints. And they are vulnerable then to Satan's lies and being hardened against God's truth. This, my friends, is a very dangerous place to be. And this person is delivered over Satan, it says, for the destruction of the flesh. The flesh, this is the sinful part of our nature. And the flesh is what is the problem. See, the flesh is opposed to God. The flesh is opposed to our regenerate part that wants to obey God. The flesh is the problem. And the flesh is what is causing this continued rebellion against God. And as such, this flesh must be destroyed. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 16-24, he says, I tell you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, the flesh must be destroyed. And oftentimes this is painful. This is very painful, excruciatingly painful. And this could be physical illnesses. It could be the maladies that are associated with the natural consequences of the sinful danger, the sinful behavior that you have engaged in that got you there. They could be, the, they could be legal. They could be financial. They could be physical. And the further the person walks in the flesh, the longer they continue to rebel against God, the more painful the destruction of the flesh will be. And the destruction of the flesh is essential. But this pain is not the end goal. The pain is not the goal. But look at verse 5. It says, And you are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is the goal. This is the goal of all discipline, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, the goal of discipline is the restoration of the sinner back into a state of grace the state of receiving and rest upon Christ alone, living in submission to his word. And church discipline is not meant to punish. It's not meant to hurt. It's not meant to shame. It is meant to reconcile. It is meant to reconcile the rebellious sinner, first and foremost to God, first and foremost to Christ, and then to restore the sinner into the fellowship among God's people, back to the church, back to the bride of Christ. And while the restoration of the sinner is the goal of the church, discipline. It's not the only goal. It's not even the main goal. And here we come to the third point on our outline, why church discipline is essential. See, there's much more dangerous result from failure to discipline that goes beyond the fate of a single sinner. Failure to discipline destroys the witness of the church, destroys the purity of the church. It makes the church weak. It makes us anemic. It makes us worldly. In verse 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. He's basically saying, you guys are idiots. 
You're boasting. You're proud about how tolerant you are of this wicked sin. But you don't know. As he continues in verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? So what's he talking about here? A little leaven leavens a whole lump. Well, leaven is the bacteria that was in a, a lump of dough that actually causes the dough to rise. It's, it's in biblical times when they were making uh, bread. I mean, some of you may may, may may make bread. I used to have a bread maker. It was real easy. You put all the water, the flour, and then you get this little yellow packet of yeast, and you open it up, and you pour that in. A couple hours later, you got bread. But that's not how it was in the old time. You, you couldn't just go out and buy one of these little yellow packets of yeast. To start off, what you had to do is you, you mixed everything up, and you left it for a couple of days. And the natural bacteria that's in the air would get into the bread and would start to eat the, the, the sugars that are in the bread and producing gas, which would cause the, the lump to rise. But once you had that lump, you, you, what you would do is you'd have your lump of dough, you take a little piece of it out, you cook the bread, and you take the other piece and you throw it into another one. And the bacteria there would start to spread. And that's how you would do it, and that's how we would make bread. I've actually heard that there are people now who make sourdough bread from bacteria lines that are like 100 years old. They just keep taking it and, and putting it into the next piece. That's how they would do it. But in Old Testament time, leaven, yeast, it represented sin. And just like a little bit of this, this bacteria in a lump of dough would spread and multiply and allow you to make bread indefinitely, the same is true of sin. A little bit of sin will continue to propagate, will multiply. See, sin does not like to exist in isolation. Sin gets lonely. Sin wants company. And sin is contagious. And it needs to be contained. It needs to be quarantined. Because if it's not dealt with, if it's not dealt with definitively through church discipline, it will grow. And it will quickly spread throughout the entire church. And my friends, we see churches now. There are churches that were faithful at one time that are now completely apostate because they did not <clears throat> discipline the church. They did not discipline sin and error when it first came. They were tolerant. They were loving. They were big tents. And they're now apostate. And they are not Christian at all. And Paul here <clears throat> invokes the Passover imagery in, in verse 7. It says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And if you remember during the Passover, God's people would remove all the leaven. Even, even Jewish people today do this. Remove all the leaven from their house. All the bread is all thrown out and, and gone. And what this was is this was to commemorate what happened, the, the flight from Egypt, when the Israelites had to leave so quickly that they didn't have time to allow their, their bread to rise. And they made unleavened bread. And you may even see, you look at the bread that we have for our Lord's Supper. We're using matzah. It's unleavened bread. And this is to symbolize that Christ is, our, is sinless. There is no leaven in Christ because that represents Christ's body. Now, this is just symbolism. This is not essential. I know churches that use really good homemade bread, and that's, that symbolizes the deliciousness of Christ. So it's not, you, you, could do, you could do either one. I'm just talking about what our symbolism is here. But the point of this passage is not about the Lord's Supper. It's that the sinful person must be dealt with to keep this sin from propagating throughout the church. And verse 8 makes it even more concrete. He says, let, there, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, church discipline is a rejection. It's a casting out of malice and evil. And it's a sincere embracing of God's truth. And where's God's truth found? In his word. 
So church discipline is not abusive. It's not punitive. It's not controlling like some cults would have you controlling every aspect of your life. No, it's simply declaring clearly and sincerely declaring God's word with respect to a specific sin. And just to go through practical, at this church and in all biblical churches, there are three steps in church discipline. And the first step in church discipline is admonition. And this is a statement by the church, and it could be either verbal or in writing, that what the person is doing, what the person is doing, his actions are out of accord with God's word. They are sinful. And it's a call for the person to repent, to come back, to, to cease this sinful action. So in the case that we're looking at here, it for this person to leave this unlawful relationship that the person was in, to cease what you're doing. And the purpose of this step is clarity. It's clarity. See, there must be no doubt that the behavior in question is sinful and that a person is called to repent from this and to turn away from this activity. See, ambiguity is the death of a church. The church must speak with a clear voice about sin. When we are ambiguous about sin, people think it's okay. It's like Ezekiel's watchman on the wall. The church is like the watchman on the wall. Remember, remember in that passage? It says that if you see the enemy coming and you're silent, that person's going to die and it's going to be on your head. Well, we are like that as a church. We are not to be silent when a person is sinful, is sinning. So ambiguity is the death of the church. So the purpose of this is, is, to, is to bring people to repentance. And once this happens, once repentance and ceasing from the sinful action, they, they pull away, that's when discipline ends. That's when the sinner is restored. If a person if a person doesn't respond to this first step, this admonition, and oftentimes that's all it is, just pointing out they, they want to do what's good and they don't they don't realize. You say what you're doing is sinful as opposed to God's word. And oftentimes they recognize, just like King David, when he was confronted by Nathan, and he was confronted, his eyes were open, and he wrote that beautiful Psalm fifty one as he repented before the Lord. So that's the first step. One that happens, it's a joyful and the sin is restored. If that doesn't happen, the admonition, the second step in church discipline is suspension from the sacraments. And most likely that is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this suspension has a twofold reason. First, it's done to protect the sinner. 1 Corinthians 11, which I'm going to read when we do the institution of the Lord's Supper in a few moments, Paul warns those who come to the sacrament, he says, in an unworthy manner. So what's an unworthy manner? Well, an unworthy manner is a stubborn refusal to repent of your sins once those sins have been pointed out. And that's why we have to examine ourselves. We have to say, Lord, show me these sins. We don't want to come in an unworthy manner. But if you know your sins, they've been pointed out, and you still come, that's when judgment comes. It says the person eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is very serious. Paul said there were people who were weak and sick, and even some who have died because they have done this. So first, this is to protect the sinner from incurring further judgment. The second reason for the suspension is that it's a true, we believe it's a true means of grace. And it's hoped that a person will become spiritually hungry and crave for the sacrament. And this spiritual hunger will motivate them to deal with their sin and to come to repentance. And some of you may remember when we were, again, during the pandemic, where we went a couple of months without celebrating the Lord's Supper. I know many of us were hungry for it. We were, we were starving for this, uh, this uh, uh, meal. So this is the second step. This is the suspension from the sacraments. The final step in church discipline is what we've been talking about in this passage. It's excommunication. 
And this is when the church declares that the person, because of, of his or her hard heart and her rebellion against God's word and against the church's loving discipline, that this person is declared to be an unbeliever. It is when a person is handed over to Satan so that the flesh may be destroyed with the hope that the spirit will be saved. And it's also, as we mentioned, a protection for the purity of the church so that this sin does not propagate throughout the people of God. And again, repentance is the goal of each step. No matter what the offense, if the person repents and turns away from the sin, he or she will be restored into fellowship. Now, there may be temporal consequences. Often there are temporal consequences, right? If a person broke a law, they're going to go to jail. They're going to, they're going to have to pay says if, if there's a fine. Those are going to be real, but they're going to be good with God. Their soul is going to be good. And one final note about church discipline and why it is really an essential mark of a true biblical church is because grace and repentance go together. You can't separate them. And I've said this many times from this pulpit, that Without the bad news, without the bad news, the good news doesn't make any sense to us. And the bad news is that God is holy and we are not. The bad news is that each one of us is under a death sentence for our sins. And we are without hope, saving God's sovereign mercy. My friends, this is the bad news. But the good news, the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God made Christ who knew no sin to take our sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sin and gave us his righteousness. He punished his sin on the cross and our sin, our sin on the cross. And we receive his perfect sinless righteousness and obedience to God. But unless we understand this, unless we understand the bad news, unless we know that we stand condemned before God, we will not care. We would be bored about the good news. We won't care about it. We won't love it. We won't cling to Christ as our only hope, our only hope in life and death. And we'll foolishly think, I, I don't need Christ. I, I'm not that bad. We think we're good enough on our own. My friends, this is eternally tragic. To put it as plainly as possible, church discipline forces us to confront the bad news. It shines a light on our self-deception and shows us our true state, the true state of our hearts that our hearts are filthy, that we are sinners, that we are under God's judgment. And discipline does not allow us to close our eyes to the bad news. It forces us to see it. It forces us to deal with it, to reconcile it, and, and, to, and to repent of it. It's only then. It's only when we see this bad news and repent of our sins and embrace Christ and embrace the gospel of grace. It's only then that the good news becomes the most wonderful news, the most amazing news. And in this, the sinner is saved. In this, the church is purified, and in this, God is glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. This is not a, not a, a, a popular topic, a pleasant topic, but we thank you, Lord, that you, have, you know how we are, and you know we need these guardrails. You know we need this discipline because our hearts are prone to wander. Even the most sanctified of us are prone to wander. And so, Father, I pray for our church. I pray for other churches, Lord, that we will be faithful that we will be listening to you. We will be holding each other accountable to what your word teaches about sin. And we will never make peace with it. We will continue to fight with sin and it will be a lifelong process. But we know that we are secure, secure in the grip of your grace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.